Hey, Bruce. You know, when we're talking about polling, the term salience tends to come up a lot. And I know for many, that's an SAT word. For me, the first time I heard the term, I had to look it up. What does that mean as it relates to polling? It's favorability. Do you really care? And are you passionate about the question? And I think it's an important question for not only the pollsters, but also for policymakers. And so they may see that people say they support it, but do they really? And I think the question then is, you know, how much do they care? Mm, Yeah. I know for us, when talking about polling, especially as it relates to children's issues, we have seen time and time again, that there's a deep commitment and and a favor, a clear favor to make investments in kids and prioritize their well-being. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Not only does the American public favor these issues, but they actually do care. And I think that's that's the thing that policymakers don't necessarily understand. There is a perception that people may say they're for kids' issues, but they don't really care. But I think, as our guest today will show, that's that's not the case. And when you think of the term salience, does it relate to issues outside of kids? Do you think that the level of scrutiny when people talk about the term salience comes into play as much? In your experience, do you feel like it's a given? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. I think that often people do assume that, yes, people are passionate about issues like Medicare, Social Security, and they also know that senior citizens vote. So for policymakers, they really have to know that that the voters also care about things like child care or the children's health insurance program. And if they don't, they're not going to prioritize it. And that's what we see often in public policy. From First Focus on Children, this is Speaking of Kids. I'm Bruce Leslie. And I'm Maselich Luby. Speaking of Kids is a podcast that puts kids at the center of public policy. In some of our work on polling and focus groups with the public, there sometimes is a disconnect with the public about children's issues. And so one time we were doing a focus group with the public and the pollster asked, you know, the people in the room, what are the major issues that you're most concerned about? And people said all kinds of things. People talked about Social Security and Medicare. Um, One guy even talked about trash having his trash picked up is a huge issue to him. And of all the people in the room, there's only one person who really mentioned a kid's issue and it was education. So the pollster then did ask people, so you don't care about kids. And it was at that point, people that came unglued. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think that just goes to show that kids are not always top of mind. You know, they're there and people know they're important and their issues, especially if you're, you know, a young parent or part of a family. But I think that just goes to show that sometimes it needs to be teased out a little bit. Yeah. I think people inherently get that education is a kid's issue. But once you sort of then bring to them the questions of things like the child tax credit or children's health or child nutrition, people are very like, oh, my God, yes. And so that was the case here. The pollster then said to people, you didn't mention kids. You didn't say anything about them. And people said, no, no, no. We are absolutely, and some people even stood up and were yelling back at him. And he then ran out of the room and ran into us and said, oh my God, you guys have a scratch and sniff issue. <laughs> I, immediately the stickers come to mind where, <laughs> where, you know, it could be a cute little sticker, but until you kind of really scratch it and get below the surface, it's not so obvious. I love that term. 
<laughs> no, absolutely. And it was very instructive that the public does care. They just sometimes don't think about children as a public policy issue. And I think that's inherent and that the media doesn't really cover kids' issues. Absolutely. I mean, over our time together at First Focus, we've done several polls. And I think even the notion of polling on issues related to children and families is really unconventional. It's not typically something that's done. Yeah, I think that one of the things we've really learned is that we can't just ask the question of whether people favor or disfavor a policy. They, we've also got to ask the question is, how much do you care about this? So that the public then is, you know, ask the question, but then we can show policymakers, actually, it is salient. They actually do care and they do so passionately. You know, in our recent poll that, you know, we surveyed a thousand likely voters and it showed it was a five to one margin that voters believe, you know, we are spending too little on children. Is the ratio where the salience comes in when when you're looking at polling? The ratio is important. Um, it does show that the, the public overwhelmingly does support it. But then the next question, I think that Celinda Lake, who's our guest today, really taught us is that we also need to ask the question of how much do you favor it? Are you deeply concerned or, or are you not concerned? And it's at that point, I think, then we can show not only do the public overwhelmingly support an issue, but they actually overwhelmingly care. Oh, that It's like another layer of the scratch and sniff. It's getting to the fact that folks do care about kids. And then it's really drilling down to get to, okay, well, at what level, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think like we asked in that poll about the child tax credit, the public showed that they overwhelmingly support it by a 72 to 21% margin. But then she also asked the question of, you know, how concerning is that to you? And asked questions related to it, like we know that child poverty um, has an enormous negative impact on the cost to society. There's an estimated more than $1 trillion cost of child poverty to society. And the public said that by an overwhelmingly, or more than 80% of people said they found that concerning. I remember that question. And, and what I found interesting is that held true across party lines as well. Yeah, it was definitely bipartisan. Democrats, Republicans, actually tripartisan, and even independents all overwhelmingly said they were concerned about it and they, they strongly favor it. Yeah. I mean, even the question on, you know, child poverty at large and, you know, voters concerned about child poverty, both in terms of as a comparison to adult poverty and the cost of it. Like we know that there is a long term cost involved with poverty and we know that early investments in kids, the return on investment on these critical programs, if funded adequately and expanded, can save money down the line. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that sometimes people don't think about the child tax credit being a public policy issue per se. And when you then sort of get them focused on it, they actually overwhelmingly are concerned about it. And they get inherently that it's good for kids, it's good for families, but it's also good for society, you know, per your point that the cost of child poverty really does have a negative societal effect. Absolutely. Well, I know we've been talking about Selena Lake and are really thrilled to have her on today. And we've been working with her since the inception of First Focus back in 2005 in various ways. And she really does understand this inherent problem we face as child advocates about 
getting policymakers to understand the importance of children. Yeah, I mean, the poll that she did with us, it was conducted in, I believe, May of 2022, right? Yes, exactly. And when we received the the results and when we pushed out an overview, we shared with the public that, you know, Celinda and her team conducted this poll on a thousand likely voters with an oversampling of parents, Black and Hispanic voters. Why was that important for us to do? There was some polling at the time that showed that support for the child tax credit wasn't that strong. And, and when we looked at the questions, the focus of those questions were about parents. And this is always our barrier. If people are saying we should do a child tax credit to help parents or not help parents, that's a different question for the public than should we do the child tax credit to help children. And so we really wanted to dive into that and say, should we pass a child tax credit that reduces child poverty, for example? And what we found was there's a huge difference in the public of how they perceive the issue when it's focused on parents versus kids. And for us, that's important because we're then able to better advocate for these issues and paint a different picture, especially when we talk about the term salience and children's issues being a scratch and sniff issue. It almost shows to me that you have to be scratching in the right spot, right? Like even if you're digging a little deeper, but the angle's a little off, people are not going to truly understand where the benefit and the value lies because the focus is on in this case, the adults and the parents, whereas we really know the real benefit and the real return on investment lies with children. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we have the evidence that shows that every aspect of the lives of kids is negatively affected by child poverty. And so for years and years, pollsters told us, you know, we really can't talk about poverty issues. You need to talk about low-income working families. Well, kids don't work. So we really needed to get at, do people really care about the cost and implications to both children and society of child poverty? And so we not only asked then, do you support the child tax credit as it affects child poverty? And we then also asked, do you think it matters to children themselves? And then also whether it matters to society. And, and the great thing about Celinda's work is it really showed that the public deeply cares and and is concerned about those issues and others as well. Right. I mean, we even asked about children's health. Exactly. In the, in the polling, we know the American people really love Medicare and Social Security. So we wanted to dive into what about the children's health insurance program, which is that for kids. And what we found is that overwhelmingly, the public also cares about health insurance for children. It's not just that they only care about seniors. They also care about kids. Yeah. Celinda's just a master at what she does and the way that she frames questions and the issues and the sub-issues that she gets at really do help for us paint a better picture of where voters are, you know, in, in their minds on a number of different issues, yeah. you know, even including public safety. Absolutely. We know from the poll that people are concerned that we're not investing enough in reducing gun violence. And Sally, you've got kids in public schools and you have childcare issues. How did the public fair on those issues? Overwhelmingly in favor and support of, of these issues. I mean, and I, I can definitely attest to the cluster that is childcare in America today, no matter any way you slice it, whether it's a in-home support, uh, actual facility daycare situation, major issues with staffing, with curriculum, with, you know, all of the above. So that's an issue also that impacts families at all different socioeconomic levels. 
But absolutely, when you think about families that, you know, have second shift jobs, third shift jobs, I mean, their childcare options are very limited. Yeah. And if Congress really wants people to be working and supporting that, people need childcare. I mean, it's just a fact. And instead, what Congress is doing is allowing those dollars to expire. And there's an estimate that 3 million people will lose childcare in the next few months if Congress doesn't extend that funding. And so there's a huge disconnect in Congress about what the American public believe and also what they really need. Absolutely. I mean, I think the latest census numbers really demonstrate and highlight what families are going through right now, now that, you know, that credit has expired. Yeah. And with respect to the child tax credit, um, its expiration means that an additional 3 million children have been pushed back into poverty. In fact, the combination of all those things actually more than doubled child poverty in this country between 2021 and 2022. That is not the direction that parents support or even the American public, and it's certainly really bad for kids. And to dive further into these questions, um, we're really pleased to have Celinda Lake join us today. Celinda Lake was one of the two main pollsters for the Biden campaign, is the only Democratic pollster to play a major role in defeating two incumbent presidents, and is a prominent pollster and political strategist for progressives. Celinda currently serves as president of Lake Research Partners. Celinda works with innovative messaging projects that help redefine language on the economy, inequality, big money in politics, climate change, public schools, teachers, criminal justice reform, and has worked in depth on the race class narrative work. To me, one of the greatest things about Celinda is her focus on both women's issues and children's issues. She really gets the inherent issues facing them. And she, for example, did some really great work with us way back on this sort of question of who's for kids and who's just kidding. All-time favorite slogan, who's for kids and who's just kidding. I'm going to put it on a hat. Hi, Celinda. It's so great to have you today. I just want people to know, you know, we've known each other since the 1990s, and I just am a huge fan of Celinda's work and all that she does in this space. But anyway, we just want to thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much. It goes both ways. Some of the most important and most positive work we've done has been with you, Bruce. So thank you so much. Well, you know, I think the first question we want to ask you is, what is it like to be a pollster? And what kind of work is that? And how is that relevant to people in society? I love polling because I love to hear what people are thinking. And I think very, very often, not always, but very often, the public is way ahead of some of the elites and our conventional wisdom. And I love turning conventional wisdom on its head. For example, in the work we've done with you that we'll talk about later on child tax credit was really true. Yeah, I love hearing why people think the way they do. And I often feel that they're very ill-served. We're a kind of unique polling firm. We don't just poll for where you're at, and we don't tell people, let's take people where they're at. We want to head where we think it's most important to head with our clients, and then we find out how do we get the public there, or are they already there? We don't tell elected officials, and in fact, our client base it wouldn't work anyway. We don't tell them uh, what to believe, but we figure out what they believe and then how to move it forward. We're a progressive firm, and when we started out, people said you can either be a major firm or you can be progressive, but you can't be both. And we said, well, we're going to try it and just see. And thanks to good friends like you and good causes, we've been able to be a progressive firm and still have, I hope, major impact. A third of our work is for foundation. 
foundations, a third of our work is for issue advocacy groups, and a third of our work is for candidates. And we think that's a great synergy. And we also do a lot of work on initiatives, and we've done some of that work with you all, because we love the idea of people getting to vote directly on ideas. And I'm originally from Montana, so that's a big initiative state where people really like having their say. And Salinda, you've been at this for a very long time. When you think back to even 20, 30 years ago to now, are there any insights that you've noticed as it relates to polling and the information that you're getting or how willing people are to answer your questions? Yes, unfortunately, it's gotten harder and harder. Polling is also used and abused so badly. We were one of the first firms, along with the Terrence Group, to come out against push polling because it's not polling. It's canvassing or whatever you want to call it, persuasion, but it's not polling. And then you have commercial outlets and fundraising that pretends to be a poll but isn't really. So people's response rates have really plummeted, and there used to be times when We could get like 73% of the voters to answer our polls, and now we're down to 20% if we're lucky. Much, much harder to get people to respond, much harder to reach people and to have truly representative samples. So it's gotten a lot harder to poll. I do find that people, when they really truly believe they are being asked their opinions, And we reassure people that everything they say is confidential and there are no right or wrong answers, just what they think, then uh, people are very willing. But it's hard to poll today. So to get into the kids stuff a little bit, you know, one of the things that we would complain about is that kids are such an afterthought and often invisible in terms of policymaking. And yet in the work you've done with us, you've really shown that actually voters do care. And so how do you judge salience? Like some people would say, Oh, sure, kids poll well, but no one really cares. Is that true? Or are actually kids salient to voters, both parents and the general public? We look at salience in a lot of different ways. We look at the intensity that people feel. Like, sure, you know, 70% of people support something, but what's the strong support? We ask people, will they vote this issue? If a candidate did not support this policy, would they actually vote the issue or wouldn't it make any difference to them? We ask people to rank priorities of issues. And very often children's issues are very strongly at the top. The problem is that I think there are two problems for the movement. One problem is the issue agenda is so broad and so diffuse. If you're going to fight for seniors, you know exactly what you want to do. You want to go fight for Social Security and Medicare. If you're going to fight for children, it's a huge agenda. In some ways, we've made some steps forward, but in lots of ways, we've made some steps backwards. And that's very frustrating. Probably one of the things I was most frustrated about with the children's agenda is that we took away the child tax credit threw three and a half million children back into poverty, you could never do that, say, take away Social Security and throw three and a half million seniors back into poverty, rightly so. But that happened without a blip on the radar. So I think it's very frustrating. The second thing I think is that the agenda is so diffuse, it's so big, And it very often isn't talked about in values-oriented language. You know, we've learned a long time ago from George Lakoff, the side that sets the frame wins the debate. 
and framing beats the facts. If the facts don't fit the frame, then people reject the facts, not the frame. And now we're in an era of alternative facts. So we can't just win this with facts. We can't win it with statistics. They all help, and it's very important to document and experts, but we have to set a values-oriented frame. And I think we often jump immediately into the debate before we do that. Well, you brought the CTC, which for our listeners is the child tax credit. And it's really interesting because there's been a lot of polling on various aspects of the child tax credit. And the numbers are kind of all over the place, right? There's some polling that shows that voters support it, but not by a wide margin. And then in the work you did with us, there's a 51%, it was 7221 in support of the child tax credit. And so is that part to this issue, the framing and sort of how you talk about it? Or what explains that gap and the salience of the child tax credit to voters? One of the problems with the child tax credit, and it's a problem often with a lot of the children's issue agenda, is that people don't know what we're talking about. You don't have to explain to people what Medicare is. You don't have to explain to people what Social Security is. So the support for the child tax credit depends very much on how you word it, because a lot of people come to the table not knowing what we're talking about. And the default children's agenda tends to be good public schools. That's a place where people think, okay, well, that's where I can make a difference. Even if I don't have children, I can support good public schools and young people, millennials and Gen Zers, college-educated women, a lot of people very, very supportive of investing in public education. But when you get beyond that to the 360-degree view, a lot of people don't know what the agenda is and don't know what these programs are. We also asked about overall spending on children. And by a five-to-one margin, voters really do believe that we're spending too little on children. Yeah. And where their mind goes via education or other services that, you know, free lunch, for example, are things that are more widely acceptable in, in the regular vocabulary of everyday parents. Is that really where the disconnect comes in, in, in your opinion? Where, yes, we know that we're, we're not investing enough, but then the solution to that is, okay, well, then where should we invest? Or how does that resonate with you? Yeah, it's a very complicated issue. And you're right, 56% of the people say we're spending too little. Only 10% say we're spending too much. And you have people really supporting more spending when you talk about specific policies. Two-thirds basically think we're spending too little reducing poverty, accessing mental health, which is a huge agenda item, reducing child abuse, reducing child homelessness. And there's quite a bit of increased awareness about some of these issues like child homelessness, like mental health. But people aren't sure how are these programs delivered, particularly the younger children. They think, okay, we spend you know, a little more here and a little more there and a little more everywhere. And it starts to add up to real money. They want to set some priorities. People are tax sensitive and they are increasingly tax sensitive in the current era because in an inflationary period, people get very tax sensitive, including some of our most supportive constituencies like Latino voters who are very supportive of children's issues, but are very tax sensitive as well, particularly in this high inflationary period. So it's very, very complicated. People are also feeling like, oh, we're spending so much in Ukraine. Can we afford, whether you support that money or not, can we afford to increase spending in all these other areas? And where does it stop? 
people also like programs that sound more universal. One of the things that the seniors agenda has as such an advantage is everyone thinks they are going to be a senior someday, God willing. A lot of people have responsibility for aging elders in their family, and people see children and children's investment as kind of a five-year problem, like childcare, five-year problem that gets better every year. Seniors can be a 20-year problem that gets worse every year. So it's easier to amass momentum behind the seniors' agenda than it is behind the children's agenda. But the point is, a lot of people have assumed that that means people don't want to invest in children, don't think we need to. And that's categorically wrong. Bipartisanly, people think we spend too little. And when we're talking about specific investments, people feel very strongly about that. You know, as a follow-up on that, I think in our polling with you over the years, education has always been really high and health have really been the two highest polling issues. But in this last poll you did with us, it was actually child hunger. And child homelessness was really up there. And what do you think brought that about? Was it the pandemic, the economic challenges that people really saw them? Because early in the pandemic, as you'll recall, like people were like, ah, kids are fine. And it was sort of a, over time, people really realized that was not the case. Is So did, do you think that was what really moved that and why those had bigger resonance with voters as well? Yes, I think what's really interesting, in some ways, the specificity has meant that people are thinking more seriously about it. People used to have these two kind of throwaway buckets, education, healthcare, that's where we should invest. But it was hard to turn that into specific programs. People paid a lot of attention to what happened to children and their grandchildren during the pandemic, and they're very worried about it. And so the specific agenda of abuse and neglect Reducing child poverty, child homelessness, those things even beat public education, healthcare, although they were quite strong as well. So I think people got more of a sense of what are some of the specifics, what are some of the crises for young people and children, what did we lose and how are we going to regain it? And people paid more attention than they had in the past if they didn't have young children. I think we also had some breakthroughs in the sense that with the child tax credit, And with some of the other programs, even though it's very frustrating what happened in the long run that they were seen as short-term programs, not long-term, that we were able to create much more of a sense of the difference that could be made with public investment. Before that, people alternated between thinking, yes, we need to invest in children. We need to make public investment, and public education was a place for that. But it's also personal family responsibility. We can't intervene. We shouldn't be telling people how to raise their families. They need to make their own judgments. People are responsible for deciding how many children they want. And I think in this era, people have much more of a sense of how the specific public investments could work, how they could be delivered, and how you can combine the private and the public responsibility. That's a great point. And, you know, in your view, with respect to the development of just federal government policies that involve children, you know, voters expressed widely that they do agree that there should be a child well-being standard or, you know, always being governed by 
best interest standard, even outside, because we find, and this is our, you know, our work, but there's always a kid angle to any issue, right? Like even your example with Ukraine, there still is a kid issue in there, right? Like, what does that look like? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I think you make a really, really interesting point. And I think that's not developed enough. We've been talking about programs for children in very targeted ways for a long time. And that's made people think it's kind of a niche program rather than a broad program. One of the things we found, and it seems so obvious after the fact, that it really helps to talk about investments in children as investments in children and grandchildren, because older voters vote in very high numbers, much higher than the parents of young children. And they vote in off-year elections, and they really want to do something for their grandchildren and feel very flummoxed after the COVID experience. What can I do? And also, sometimes their suggestions aren't very welcomed by their children about what to do about their grandchildren. So we see, for example seniors voting for children's initiatives in record numbers around the COVID era, even before COVID, because they wanted to make investments in children and grandchildren. We find that it's very powerful to talk about that investing in children has a a large return on a healthy society and a healthy economy. So unfortunately, we've had too many ads and including late night ads on TV and ads for very good programs, but all over the world that have young children in very poor conditions. And it's easy to create that sympathy and that emotional reaction, but then it also numbs people. They think, well, what can I do about hunger in Sudan? What can I do about children in poverty in Peru? So it's helpful, very helpful to have success stories and to talk about the payoff that these investments have for the children and also for our society. And then we have two-thirds of people who now think that the next generation will not be better off than they are. And this is very acute for the baby boomers. And it's very anti the myth we tell ourselves about America. America was a place where people firmly, firmly believed that if you came here, you worked hard, you could ensure a better future for your children, and everybody could do that. And we had a wonderful woman in a focus group recently say a very poignant quote. She said, you know, it used to be that if you worked really hard, you could ensure your kids had a chance at the American dream. Now, if you work very hard, you can barely pay your bills. And that's the collective psyche of the country. And it's very violating of why people come here. It's very violating of what we think of as the American story. And uh, people are very upset about that. They want to change that. They think it's a fundamental aspect of decline in America. But they want it to be something that they think they can accomplish. Right now, the enemy of investment in children is actually not opposition. It's cynicism. People wonder, will this work? What are we specifically supposed to be doing? How can we do all these things at once? Will the money be well spent? Will it have return? And I think that was something that the COVID experience helped us with because it showed that public investments could make a difference. What Linda is talking about here is something, you know, we've been feeling at first focus forever. 
this notion that there's two agendas. On one hand, we have an agenda that's really kid-centered, family-centered, and really favors investments in education, in child well-being, and in looking at the future of children and families in this country and making investments in critical programs. And on the other side, we have something that's drastically different, another agenda, right, Bruce? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the real focus should be on what kids really need, and instead, there's this whole push to focus on some of the issues that's really more a cultural agenda, and it's focused on things like banning books and whitewashing history and speech codes and even attacks on kids in some ways, right? There's been these sort of attacks on LGBTQ kids, and and that's really not what kids need, and we'll be getting into that with Celinda after this. Making the world a better place for all children can seem like an impossibly huge task. Some of you may be thinking, I am just one person. What could I possibly do to make a difference? I'm Leila Nimatala, Vice President of Advocacy and Mobilization at First Focus on Children. And I'm inviting you to join us and become one of our volunteer advocates, whom we call our Ambassadors for Children. Ambassadors are our most active child advocates who raise critical issues with the U.S. Congress and with the administration related to child policy and funding decisions, both for kids in the U.S. and worldwide. But don't take my word for it. We asked one of our ambassadors to share her experience. Hello, my name is Annette Bridges, also known as Dr. B, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky. The welfare of children and their families is a deep concern for me and really always has been, especially those from marginalized communities. I care about equity in education, resources, and health. And I'm not quite sure what it's going to take for our elected officials to invest in our children. And I mean fully invest in our children. It really boils down to the haves and have-nots. It's a selfish attitude if an elected official does not consider children as a priority. I say selfish because, if you think about it, other countries with less resources can provide universal preschool as an option for families. Then why is it that our country can't do that as well? I am proud to be an ambassador for First Focus on Children because they are serious about the work they have done, are doing, and will do in the near future. Their efforts are relentless. Think about being an ambassador for them, being a voice for the voiceless. I can't think of anything else more worthy. Thanks for listening, and it's been my pleasure to talk about what is near and dear to my heart, and that is children. Thank you for your time. So please join us, won't you? Check out campaignforchildren.org backslash ambassadors on how to become a First Focus on Children ambassador and to link up with our fabulous community of committed child advocates. First Focus on Children is a bipartisan advocacy organization dedicated to making children and families the priority in federal policy and budget decisions. First Focus on Children moves beyond individual issues to serve a more important role, children's advocates. We educate lawmakers and the American public about the issues facing children. Our Ambassadors program is made up of regular people just like you. 
What we know and what I personally experienced on the Hill was that when you reach out to policymakers, the first couple of times they may say, oh, you know, we really got to think about this issue. But by the time they've heard an issue, really just six times. So we, we used to refer to this as the power of six. And once you sort of get to that six time, they actually recognize this is a big issue to people. So it's not one of these things that we need to have thousands and thousands of people to call. We really just need policymakers to hear from six people in a district. And if they do, it really does have a major impact on the way they see and think about issues. A small and mighty team. Leila Nimatala will be here to talk about what's going on, the way people really care about kids' issues, but Congress doesn't pay attention in our upcoming segment, Legislative State of Play. Now back to our conversation with Celinda Lake. And one of the things that we've talked about, and I think to piggyback on what you were just talking about in terms of, you know, the cynicism that some people have about whether it's a doable thing, is sort of these two agendas, right? And so there's an agenda of investing in kids like the child tax credit and you know, investing in reducing, you know, preventing child abuse and reducing child hunger and education and all those kinds of things. And then there's this other agenda that's being widely talked about right now around book bans and whitewashing history and, and lots of the cultural war issues. And so can you talk about that from your perspective as a pollster and then also what advice would you have to the children's community about how can we seize back this debate and really get our issues back in the forefront? Because to us, it's it's very clear that that is actually where voters are. But I'll defer to you on that. So there are three things, I think, and it's a super important question that you're asking. And one of the things that we have is we are back on our heels a little bit. I think that people assume this wedge agenda is more popular than the investment agenda. It turns out it's not. People overwhelmingly, when given the choice, vote for the investment agenda, and they find that this this cultural agenda is very, very divisive. It really exists in three buckets. First of all, there are the things that the public's adamantly against. The public is adamantly against banning books, really upset about that idea. And they think parents should obviously know what their kids are reading and should have some say in what their children are reading. But there are also a lot of people that just think, I just wish my kid would read any book. Teachers have been very proactive in letting parents know what their kids are reading. So parents don't see this as a problem. And even when this agenda was so-called put forth in the Virginia gubernatorial race, it actually didn't influence parents. The irony is that we won parents. We lost the silver seniors. They were the ones who were mobilized. They were the ones that were frightened. And then when people were told what some of the books were that we were banning, like Anne Frank and Rosa Parks, my goodness, Bruce, we read Anne Frank and Rosa Parks when I was a kid. Oh, absolutely. And I love both of those books. I was really went home, raced home to read both of those books to my parents. And I lived in rural Montana, so you would have thought quite far from that experience. But I was mesmerized by them. There is a whole bucket of these things that people really, really don't actually very opposed to and and wondering what is the problem here? I don't think we've got a problem. The second bucket is things that at first sound unnerving that people, when we respond to them and respond 
shortly and flip the frame are very strong for us. So for example, this whole CRT, which people had no idea what CRT was. And then when we would say, we don't teach CRT in elementary school, people thought, well, woo, what is CRT? Maybe we shouldn't be teaching it if we don't teach it. What, What are we talking about here? And I think the president had what I have thought of as one of his shortest and most successful responses. When he was asked this question, he said, I just think our kids should be taught the truth. And people were like wildly in favor of that, like that's it. And people also think very strongly that our kids should be taught the good and the bad of our history so they don't make the same mistakes we have. People are adamantly in favor of that. And then there's an agenda where we do have to have a dialogue, where people are confused about what we're talking about, and out of their nervousness, they do tend to be more conservative in their frame, and that's the transgender agenda. And, you know, when you reframe that, like, the whole bathroom issue is ridiculous. Have we ever taken our children on a plane? Have the children ever been in a train? These are not the burning issues of our time. People guess now, the public guesses now, that 25% of all people in America are transgender. It's 1% to 2%. So people clearly have no idea what we're talking about here. And in that absence of knowledge and awareness, people come to be nervous about that issue. But in general, stepping back here, when we talk about this cultural agenda, it is solidly beat. When we say, which is the higher priority? It is solidly beat by the investment agenda. And frankly, we talk about having responses. One of the things we should do is answer quickly, and then pivot back to where our strength is. Our economic and investment messages beat their cultural messages. A lot of this is about uniting and energizing their base. It's not the agenda. People aren't running around talking about this as the major thing they want to see done for children. And Celinda, you know, for us, we're, you know this, we we are a bipartisan child advocacy organization. So we want to see elected officials, folks that are getting in the race, showcase and feature children in their platform when they're campaigning. We know that voters want to see this happen. They want to see more investments in kids. What do you think the disconnect is or what do you think the fear is around really prominently putting kids' issues in the forefront around elections and campaigns? I think there are three things. I think one thing is that voters are cynical. And I remember the Children's Hospital campaign years and years ago, who's for kids and who's just kidding? People think, yeah, every politician puts a young kid in their ad. Every politician kisses a baby. Every politician shakes the hand of a young person. But where's the agenda? And they're not sure who's for kids and who's just kidding. They're not sure who is really going to follow through. And they're very cynical about our political process now. So they want accountability. And organizations like yours putting out the votes, and if we can get those voting records and those votes out more broadly to the voting public, that would help us a lot because people are very cynical. Everybody claims to be for kids, but who's actually really voting? The flip side of it is people think, who would vote for keeping kids hungry? Like if we say that the debate that's about to come up on the food agenda, 
people are appalled at the number of kids that are going to school hungry. They're really upset by it. They really support uh, the breakfast and school lunch programs. They support making them universal. They're very supportive of the weekend uh you know, backpacks that are sent home. The teachers are very powerful spokespeople, how teachers are spending their meager wages on food for kids before tests, because who can take a test well if they're hungry? People are really upset about this. And yet, when we say so-and-so voted against food for children, people are very skeptical, like who would vote against food for children? There must be more to this bill. So we have cynicism working on both sides. People are skeptical that people are really bad on these issues, and people are skeptical that people are really good on these issues. And so it's tough to hold people accountable. And again, you know, we have people that have enormous credibility on other agendas. So if whether you like them or not, if the labor unions say somebody's good or bad on labor issues, people assume, okay, I might not agree with them, but that's the record. If ARP says somebody voted against prescription drug benefits, people think, okay, that's the record. But there isn't the kind of go-to place for the children's agenda to hold politicians accountable. And they know it. And so they get away with just having the picture in their brochure rather than putting the real meat to the agenda. So I'll ask a sort of two-part question in around that is, what would your advice be to us in this campaign season to, to sort of change that? But then two, um, more about you, which is, you know, we, we do this whole thing where we give Champions for Children awards to people, and we really think of you as one of those people. Oh, thank you. No, absolutely. And as you decided to you know, be in this field and stuff, you could have gone, you could have done polling for companies and, you know, and messaging around brands, you know, but you really have, you know, you're the number one, I think, pollster in this space on things like, you know, women's issues and children's issues, healthcare issues. So what got you there? Like, why is that your jam? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And I am very, very fortunate to have five other partners who share that jam and are passionate about it. So when we came together as a firm, and that was, uh, it was 30 years ago, I had a couple of partners and then the people that have joined have shared the same goal. We said, we don't want to make the most money. We don't want to elect the most candidates. What we want to do is we want to be for change, but we want to be realistic about that change. And so our clients often tell us, you know, some people will say, well, you know, Lake Partners only produces feel-good data. And, you know, our clients kind of laugh at that and say, have you ever been in a briefing with Celinda or her partners? That's not what's happening. They're very, very honest. We want to be very strategic and really understand what is the soft side? How will somebody come back at us? What's holding us up? But we want to leave the world better off. And we want to leave the world better off for the people that are most vulnerable. We've really been committed as a firm to children. We feel very passionate about that and feel like children are the future. It is ridiculous in a country that is 
this great that we can't have a great future for every child in our country. And we feel incredibly committed to that. And we want to be partnered. And we're very fortunate to be partnered with groups like yours. And we also don't think this is a partisan issue. When we look at the data, it's not partisan. And we've been lucky and very fortunate to be able to work with a number of Republican pollsters who have shared this view as well. And people think, well, you're a progressive firm. How can you do so much work with Republican pollsters? It's because we can find common ground. And some of them are committed as well. And on that point, you recently wrote a book with your fellow Republican pollster, Ed Goaz. That's remarkable. Can you talk a little bit about your book? Oh, thank you so much. That's so generous. And Ed is the real hero of that book. He was the inspiration. It's a book called It's a Question of Respect. And what we wanted to look at were the structural and cultural reasons that we were so polarized. Because there's a general sense that any three people in America can agree on more than Congress does right now. And what is happening? What are the incentive structures that are creating this? What are the cultural forces that are creating us? Because we both feel that the polarization that we have in this country is very destructive. It's increasing distrust and cynicism. It's stopping an agenda that could be agreed on. And it's very, very dangerous for democracy and stalls the progress that we want to make. We had been involved in an effort for a long time called the Battleground Survey, which we started uh, 35 years ago, where we decided to write a bipartisan poll, but where we wrote separate analysis. So we obviously had to agree on the questions, but then we wrote each wrote our own analysis from our own perspective. And it was a wonderful experience because we learned a lot about how each other saw the same set of data. And it became a real resource for people to learn how people think through strategy. What is the public agreeing on? What are they not agreeing on? What would each side do with this data? So we had been used to working together. One of the things we did in the book was we wrote about the problems in the we voice, and then we wrote about the solutions in the I voice, because we had different solutions. But some of those solutions could be worked together, and some of those solutions were different kinds of solutions. We also found that we shared a lot of common experience that made writing this book pretty easy, and it was fun to share with people. So both of us had been raised by families, my family, a ranch family, his family, a military family, that believe very much in respecting everyone. We were really raised with that value. The second thing we found is that, and we knew this a long time ago, that in the same year, in the same election, we changed parties. So in 1972, I was a Republican and became a Democrat. In 1972, Ed was a Democrat and became a Republican. And he often teases me that he went to the winning side, but (laughs) we've had our share of victories as well. So that was a great basis because neither one of us hates the other party. Heck, half our family's from the other parties. And we were born and raised in the other party. So it's helped us have respect for each other. It's helped us have respect for looking for a common agenda and looking for ways to reduce polarization. Celinda, thank you for that overview. Just by the interviews, and it looked like y'all had a great time writing that book. We did. And I'm happy that you've shared it with the world. You know, when you think about the environment that we live in now, it is very polarized. And so what gives you inspiration? Do you have a go-to song that, you know, may just get you out of a funk on on a difficult day? (laughs) 
Well, I'll tell you, it's it's going to be funny given the book that we just talked about. But the song that gives me hope and strength and keeps me moving is Respect by Aretha Franklin. Love it. It it is such a core value, and she calls it out, and the women's movement has been very important in my life, a very important goal for me, and just the combination of respect and strength, because sometimes people mistake bullying and toughness for strength, and that's not true. And uh, what I love about that song is it's energizing, it's respecting people, it comes from a place of strength, and it's one of my all-time favorite singers. I love it. That's awesome. I mean, I'm, my mom would be doing cartwheels to hear you say that. Too. <laughs> so it's awesome. Well, Slenda, thank you so much for all you do, but also for joining us today thank on you. Speaking of Kids. We really appreciate your time and, and all the great work you do. So thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Oh, thanks for this wonderful interview. Thanks for the partnership over the years. What you all do is just so amazing. I hope you win the lottery, and I hope we all join together on the agenda. Thank you. We'd like to welcome a voice you've heard before, our colleague Layla Nimatala. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, Layla, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm actually really curious to hear from you around what's going on on the Hill, and where do you feel efforts are needed as it relates to our ambassadors. Oh my goodness, where do I begin? The thing that I'm most focused on right now is the fact that the government may shut down if Congress isn't able to pass its annual funding bills. And that's kind of a big deal. (laughs) So the reason I'm here today is really to ensure that we get the word out to everyday American folks. I think there's a sense that Congress isn't really able to get its job done at the moment, that even if people wade in and let Congress know about what they care about, that it won't make a difference. The everyday person in my life that I talk to has a sense that things are just not working and so that there's really little that they can do to make a difference. And we know, right, that they actually can. And that if Congress does hear from people, it does matter, right? Oh, so very much. I, um, like Bruce, also worked on the Hill. And I worked on the House side. And I don't even know if it took six people to to get our attention. Sometimes it took a far fewer amount of people. But the thing was that a lot of people just didn't, think they had the skills or they were nervous about reaching out or they didn't think that what they said would make a difference. So they kind of stopped from the start. And the folks that we tended to hear from most were, you know, paid lobbyists, perhaps, or folks that are very comfortable in that kind of space. And unfortunately, there aren't many paid lobbyists for children And the issues that most Americans care about and the folks in in my life and our lives, as well as all of us on this call, care about little ones, the kids in our lives and everybody else's kids as well. I agree that it can be overwhelming to communicate with elected officials and your member of Congress, but that's what you're here for, right? And, And we know that it's not difficult. It's just talking to them like every day. 
Americans, human beings that, you know, have the same feelings and have the same experiences or maybe not quite the same experiences, but, you know, at least it, it can be relatable. It doesn't have to be difficult or complex. Absolutely, Sally. They're just folks just like us, you know, and a lot of them, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them went into Congress to make the world a better place or to contribute in some way to public good. And so we really have the opportunity to speak to their better angels when we go in there. And my old boss used to say things like, he used to refer to something called a trim tab. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I've never heard of it before, but it's a small rudder on the bottom of an ocean liner rudder. And you wouldn't try to move an ocean liner like the US government by going to the front of the ocean liner and pushing at it from that side. It would just be too difficult and the ocean liner wouldn't move. But you can move that tiny little rudder at the end of the big rudder of the ocean liner and eventually that ocean liner will start to turn. And that's what my boss was trying to tell us. Like, if you learn a few skills, learn them well, use them over and over with these kind of proven tactics that we have, you can make a big impact on moving that big ocean liner. It could be moving your member of Congress and uh, encouraging them to include, prioritize, speak about children. And eventually, together, if you move enough of those pieces within the ocean liner, maybe we'll move Congress, our U.S. government, to prioritize the funding and the policies that benefit our children. Now, kids don't vote. They don't have a political action committee. They don't have, And as you said, they don't have lobbyists. So does that make our voice voices, and also even young people themselves, they're all the more important in really getting... Congress to think about and understand kids' issues? Oh, yes. 100%, Bruce. That's a fantastic point. When constituents go into their member of Congress's office, they are given a better listening than a professional lobbyist, almost three times as much, I've heard, because they're less expected. And you don't have to, as a constituent, go in there and be an expert in policy or child policy or really anything. All you have to be an expert in is your opinion and that you care about children. And the very fact that you're a constituent of that member of Congress will carry weight in and of itself. And just, you know, we teach folks to be, you know, of course, cordial and work well um, in a constructive way with their member of Congress. Unfortunately, these days, a lot of folks are not treating members of Congress very well. So when we go in there as constituents and are pleasant and constructive and want to bring the member to the next level, you know, you don't bring a, a member of Congress who's done nothing or has opposed things to, you know, level number 10 right away, but you bring them to the next level. And over time, you can turn them, we hope, and we, we've seen in the past, into a champion. Layla, I love that. You only need to be an expert in your own opinion, which we all have opinions and thoughts, so... That feels <laughs> oh, all have opinions. that feels warm and fuzzy. Layla, thank you so much for being here today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you both so much for having me. This is Speaking of Kids. Thanks for listening. I'm Bruce Leslie. And I'm Mastelich Luby. Special thanks to our guests, Celinda Lake and Layla Nimatala. Speaking of Kids is a podcast by First Focus on Children. 
Elizabeth Windham is the supervising producer and Julia Windham is the associate producer. Special thanks to Stephanie DeLeon Sick for production assistance. Leilani Mattala is the advocacy and mobilizing producer and the senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our theme music is Don't Look Twice by Sam Barsh. For more information about this week's episode, go to firstfocus.org. You can find all our links in the show notes. If you have any thoughts, questions, or interest in becoming a First Focus on Children ambassador, email us at speakingofkids at firstfocus.org. And please follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Speaking of Kids is produced by Winhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.